On the Empire Podcast this week, we'll be delving into the archives to discuss the Andrei Tarkovsky popcorn classic Stalker, climbing the tree of wooden clogs and asking, is six moral tales really enough? Hello pod, I'm Phil Desamlian and I'm happy to welcome you to this week's Empire Podcast, where we won't be doing any of those things. Instead, we'll be taking the final bite of the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy and talking The World's End with Peg Wright and Frost. We'll also be tackling this week's big stories and following Nicolas Cage across the frozen ground. With Chris and the gang away mingling with the Dothraki at Comic-Con, there was, I'll be honest, some plans to host an art house takeover of the podcast. But there's a note here from HR informing me that a single mention of Tarkovsky will result in my instant dismissal. Uh, whoops. Uh, joining the fun this week is a man whose subtitle would simply read The Windsock of Truth because of his blunt candour, not his love of standing in the field flapping his arms around. Oh, he likes to do that too. It's James Dyer. Thank you, Phil. Next up is a man I may or may not be related to, but probably am. He's a journalist so seasoned, his first job was as a runner for Chris Columbus. He helped him discover the Americas. That's right, it's Nick Disemlian. Zing. Thanks, Phil. I did. I was a runner on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, and I basically bought food and put food out for people to eat. In the Chamber of Secrets. And Chris Columbus came up to me one day and said, I did that as one of my first jobs too. Really? And And look where he is today. Then he drove off in an expensive car. (laughs) And I I got a a bus home. Last up is a man who represents the cool head of reason in this week's podcast. If James and Nick are fire and ice... He's lukewarm water. It's Ollie Richards. What an intro. What yeah, an intro. Yeah, yeah. Is, is this going to cause problems for the readers? Since Don't we, we sound the same? We, it, Ollie is my, apparently my identical voice twin. So, right. so perhaps we need some kind of sound that we make before we speak to delineate which one of us is talking. Yeah. Can we have buzzers? Yeah. That was the same person. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm having this conversation with myself. <laughs> You don't. You don't sound the same. You sound kind of different. I said I've got more gravitas. Haven't I? Okay. Anyway, I don't mean to the, the the Derek Smalls reference. I don't mean to any disrespect by that. No, it's, it's, just it's a now, sensible Phil. It's man, it's and, out there. and you bottle your rage much better than, <laughs> than certain other people. Right. Let's kick off with your questions, musings, and dark mutterings. Starting with at Loopy Fiasco. Good Twitter name. Yeah. With the world's end bringing things to an end, what's been your favourite single moment? in the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy. Are we only allowed one? Yeah, uh, ooh. Uh, I'll tweet him. Hold on. You, you know, you can, have, you can have more than one. Please clarify your question. That's difficult. The one I choose is probably one that nobody else would choose. It's a tiny little moment. It might have been improvised on the set. It's something Nick Frost says near the end of Hot Fuzz. Why don't you go back to London? <laughs> it's the way he says London. It makes me crack up every time. Uh, I don't know why, but that makes me laugh a lot. But obviously the vinyl <laughs> chucking records at zombies, he cannot be that. My favourite's really incidental as well in um, uh, Shaun of the Dead, where there's just a bit where Simon Pegg uh, climbs up that uh, slide and looks over the fence and just goes, Is it all clear? No. <laughs> <laughs> How many are there? <laughs> lots. And there's just something about the way he says lots that I like. So it's just the way people say things yeah. seem to be our basis for yeah, favourite moments. But there are good jokes as well. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I think Shaun of the Dead's absolutely brilliant. Judge Judy and Executioner. Yes, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's pretty unbeatable. I like the bit where, um, you know, where Simon goes out to the, the, the news agent at the yeah. very beginning and everything's going on around him he's completely oblivious yeah. to it I very much enjoy that also zombie tyres tyres being the the, the, the the career from well it's Michael Smiley isn't it from uh, from Space and he appears as a zombie of oh. course zombie favourite non-spoilery moment from The World's End go on then anyone got one ooh I, I, the one that comes to mind straight away is there's a little montage that ends with the five of them standing at a bar and they all down a pint and then they say one word each and um, that made me giggle uh, my unquestionably favourite moment is uh, I won't ruin the line because it is the best moment um, but when they're trying to decide on a name for the uh, weird alien-y things yep. 
And there's a very, very funny line from Nick Frost, which I won't ruin. That's cryptic. My favourites seem to involve Nick Frost, actually. The, the Cornetto line in Shaun of the Dead, where Simon Pegg comes downstairs and he's got this nurse in this monstrous hangover. And he says, what do you want from the shops? Cornetto. I just think, I don't know why, that just makes me laugh a lot. And, <laughs> and in The World's End, when he exits the pub. Yeah, actually, I spoke to a girl after the day after the premiere and he said that that was the moment that got the biggest laugh, was Nick Frost walking through a door, essentially. Yeah. I think that's pretty much the funniest thing in the film. It's very funny. That's very funny. All right. Very funny. Very funny. At James T.W. Geddes, with another Cornetto question, with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost combining again in The World's End, Whose repeating partnerships have you enjoyed in films? And I think this is referring to the actors rather than actor-directors. The first ones that come to mind are Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, the original odd couple. The only odd couple, really, because they were in The Odd Couple. But even though, I think, beyond The Odd Couple, a lot of the films they have been in together were not necessarily brilliant. Front Page is fun, and Grumpy Old Men is quite good. Grumpy Old Men is not. But they're just a very good combination Grumpy of... Old Men, written by Mark Stephen Johnson <coughs> of Ghost Rider. Bane. Really? Yes, I believe so. Wow. I believe so. Yeah, good. I think a good combination needs to be complete and complementary opposites. So mm. there's one of them is Prissy and one of them is a uh, grumpy old disaster. But them, I would choose. That's a very good call. I'm going to go Pesci and De Niro. Uh, they haven't done that much together, but they might be appearing together again in uh, a film called The Irishman although that's been on the cards for ages that's going to be Scorsese De Niro and Pesci all teaming up again um, who knows if that will happen but you can't beat Pesci like going mental at De Niro and um, Willis and Samuel L. Jackson I'm going to do a quick quiz can any of you tell me which four films those, wow. those guys, two guys have been in together Die Hard with a Vengeance Pulp Fiction it's so early for this kind of thing <laughs> can we, we, are re- we are recording this very early in the morning Tell us. Okay, uh, Loaded Weapon Part 1. Oh, of course, I saw that. Yep, and Unbreakable. Yes, Unbreakable, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, that's that's quite foolish that we didn't get that. I like Unbreakable. Now, Ali is obviously in San Diego and couldn't be with us, but I'm sure if he were here, he'd probably join me in, in name-checking Diane Keaton and Woody Allen mm-hmm. in their many partnerships together. Um, most of all, I guess, Annie Hall, which is fantastic. And on to the next, which is at Rusty Bamford. Which terrible idea for a film surprised you by turning out to be rather good? And he gives us an example, Facebook the movie. That is a very good example, because mm. that film should have been dreadful on yeah. every level, and it was really, really good. The difficult thing is, with this is that, in retrospect, when something's great, you forget that it was a terrible idea. The one that came to my mind was uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah. Mm. Which just seemed like, why, why would you would ever do that? And it was, I mean, it had essentially the same message, but it was a very good zombie movie, I thought. I. His best movie, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that, possibly. Yeah, so would I. Um, the one that springs to my mind, the film that I was convinced was going to be terrible right up until I saw it, was Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I didn't like the trailers, I didn't like the... Uh, it sounded stupid, mm-hmm. I thought it was just a cheap cash-in on the franchise, and then I saw the film, and actually it's one of my favourite films of that year, as it is Quentin Tarantino's. I think it's his favourite film that year when it came out. And the other one is uh, Slumdog Millionaire which it was Danny Boyle so I never thought it was going to be terrible mm. but I thought that that was a pretty weird idea for a really? film is it I a terrible that's a good idea, idea really? I think that's, that's quite interesting well I think well, a film based around who wants to be a millionaire well no it's, oh, it's based around a slum kid who you know wins a yeah. million it's rupees, based around right? the game show who wants to be a millionaire okay I see what you're saying I see <laughs> what you're saying deal or no deal the movie that's mm. uh, that's what I want to find oh, that would be good I remember thinking Toy Story 3 was a bad idea because the first two have been so good that mm. what's the point are you, all you're going to do is lose and then it turns out to be the best one. Hey. But you have to trust those guys, right? Yes. Oh, and I do implicitly, but I still... Th- you know, if they made 
Toy Story 4 and so people think no mm. but then maybe it would be amazing but you can think of that a lot of ways I mean who'd have thought that remaking Ridley Scott's you know Alien would be in any way a good idea and to actually just change the genre and make it a platoon movie an action movie I mean surely that's you know predator to predators it's just you know mm. no way it should have worked but obviously because Cameron did it it did and mm. it was great at Darren Writer wants to know could J.J. Abrams start shooting Star Trek 3 while finishing Star Wars 7 and finding a cure for polio next year. I just went cross-eyed listening to that. Yeah. Uh, I I think someone's got confused and thought maybe J.J. Abrams is in the pod booth this week and you can answer that Should question. Should we ask J.J.? Yeah. Are you planning to do that? He's not saying anything. We don't have his schedule. It would seem unlikely that you could get both done in a year, but he knows better. Is he actually directing Star Trek 3? No. no well, just, so uh, Zachary Quinto has said that Abrams would like to make it next year. Yeah, but I mean, he's going to be sort of a peripheral producer role, presumably. So, I don't know. So I imagine all he's got to do is sort of go, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Carry on, chaps. Don't have a copy of JJ's schedule, which makes us poxy journalists, if you ask me. But Darren Writer asks another question. What are you most excited about at Comic-Con this year? Now, obviously, we're not at Comic-Con this year. Thanks, Darren. But our team are, and we've asked them, and this is what they've come back with. Helen wants to say that she's excited about the Marvel panel, obviously. Ali Plum is hyped for Ender's Game. James White, that is, not Dyer, obviously, wants to see something of Godzilla and says, Shield, 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 with about 47 exclamation marks. I think he's excited about that. And Chris is hoping for some Days of Future Past action. Sam doesn't know yet, but he's generally excited. And so the, the Shield thing is referring to Agents of Shield, I presume, the TV show, which I think is on the sides of all the trams. There's trams in San Diego, obviously, and each year they're branded with something different. And this they year are. it's Agents of Shield. Well, there you go. Big time. But there they're, showing, they're showing the pilot episode. I'm, pretty, I'm very excited about that. I would like to be there to watch that ep- episode. And there's the uh, Captain America one-shot spin-off, isn't there? Mm. With Hayley Atwell. I think they'll be screening that at Comic-Con as well. Mm. Just a short, though. Just a little short. Uh, I am keen to see something from formerly known as All You Need Is Kill, now known as The Edge of Tomorrow. I think it's an interesting idea. And I really like Doug Lyman. I think Doug Lyman is not given the credit he deserves as a as a blockbuster director. He's kind of given credit. He did direct the Bourne Identity. Yeah, but pe- everyone, I think everyone forgets that they've. It's become history is now that has that as Paul Greengrass's Greengrass. franchise. Yeah, I suppose franchise. But he set he set the template of that and the tone and Bourne everything Identity about was, it. Yeah, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I thought was for a, an example of its genre was brilliant. I watched Go recently. Yeah, Which good. Very different kind of. It's different. Doesn't entirely work all the way through, but I liked it a mm. lot. It's a lot of fun, and it's got Bill Fickner doing crazy, crazy good stuff as the uh, Amway salesman. Yes, good point. And with only a little further ado, it's on to our first interviews. Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost have been pals since their days at Twenty Three Meteor Street, making space into a small screen comedy classic. Since then, they've crafted a trio of genre-spanning movies, cornetocopia, if you will, that has given us zombies, all-action coppers and now a bunch of old pals drunkenly facing the apocalypse. We sent down Chris and Helen to chat to them. We are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by uh, Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost from the World's End. Hello, gents. Hello. Welcome. Hello, Hello, Chris. Empire. Hello, Helen. <laughs> How's it going, you guys? <laughs> it's really weird because uh, we're the two teetotalers on Empire, and here we are talking about, I guess, one of the ultimate drinking films. This is a film where, le- where beer is shot so beautifully, it oh. almost made me want to start drinking. Is that <laughs> right? That's <laughs> interesting. There are shots near the end where it's lit so lustrously. It's funny you oh, say yeah. that because the other day I watched the, 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 the it back finish for the first time with Bill Pope and Bill Pope says, 
then made me never want to drink a beer ever again. <laughs> and I said, it's fine, I'm really thirsty and I want to have a beer after the film. <laughs> so it's interesting you say that. It does look very pretty, the beer, it's true. And yeah. then it looks and then it looks kind of um, sinister as well. It does. There's some sinister beer shots in there as well. That's yeah. alcohol though, isn't it, I guess? Pretty, sinister. <laughs> it's like a Rorschach test, is it for people who it either is. drink or don't drink? I would say, ostensibly, if you came out of that movie wanting to go to the pub, you'd be insane, because it's not a pro-drinking film, I don't think. Mm. Um, but yeah, the beer looks gorgeous. So um, the, uh, the idea of a, of a pub crawl, you guys are past your pub crawl days, really, are, are you? Or when was the last time you, you embarked upon one? Well, there's less of us now, and uh, it's kind of more a Who's stroll died? than a crawl. <laughs> Well, you know, I, uh, I live now in Twickenham. I have one friend who drinks down there, and it's just the two of us. And I kind of like to be home by six, six ish. So okay. if ever there's a chance, think about me. What I do now is I no in the in the evening. I like to get I like to go to bed at a decent time. Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll probably say to my friend, "Oh, let's I'll meet you at noon for a quick one, and we'll drink six in an hour, and then I'll go back steaming and then go to sleep for the rest of the afternoon." That's that, my ideal pub crawl. Now, why didn't we make that as a movie? I mean, that would be amazing. Well, never, you know, Six pints, one pub, early to bed. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, the trailer for that is going to be incredible. <laughs> well, two guys went to one pub in Twickenham <laughs> and drank six pints. Then he went to bed. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you all find my life so amusing. <laughs> that's all I got now. No, it's nice. <laughs> I like it. It's cosy. You know, and that, I do that thing in Twickenham too, is that... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, if I'm six pints in after after two hours, when I come walk back down the high street, I'll often pop into a second-hand shop and, and buy my wife a, just a piece of shit. <laughs> so some, some kind of shattered milk jug to a bring tray. home. tray. Hello, I got you. <laughs> or I'll come, I'll come home with like a kilo of ham. <laughs> <laughs> Slam it on the kitchen table. Uh, I, I was a lightweight when I was a teenager, and now I'm even worse. So as, as I've discussed a number of times, there was a pub crawl that inspired the film when I was mm. 19. And in my hometown, which had 15 pubs, I got through six of them, or maybe seven. But now, I, like after three, I'd be flying. And then the thing is, I would do my version of like buying something for the wife would be like on the way home going... Mm, Drop it into a pawn shop. Get, not a pawn shop. <laughs> they don't exist anymore. There are no pawn shops. What year are you in? Pawn brokers, I meant. Pawn brokers. <laughs> Listen, like, oh, pawn shops are gone. No, it would be actually... No, it would be like going to the corner shop and buying like hummus and crackers... <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jaffa cakes and like thinking, oh, I'm still hungry. Let's get some Dr. Karg and some hummus. Dr. Karg. eat the whole thing. In the Middle East, they have Jaffa cakes, but instead of the orangey bit, it's hummus. <laughs> <laughs> and Jaffa cakes. <laughs> Yaffo cakes. Listen, if Dr. Karg appeared in your like Twickenham movie, we're getting somewhere. He sounds like a Bond villain. Who's Dr. Karg? You know, Dr. Karg, those, those spelt crackers. They're supposed to be the healthy ones. Other Do- spelt crackers are available. <laughs> Other spelt crackers. <laughs> this is not the BBC. They don't care. <laughs> you know. Listen, Other all I are available, but... is like the Empire Towers to have a huge delivery of Dr. Karg <laughs> spelt crackers <laughs> on Monday. It would be amazing. I, I don't think I can imagine anything worse. No. <laughs> to, to Usually honest. we have cake, but crackers is good. So there you guys go. have always said you wouldn't do sequels to your movies, but I'm liking the idea of Nick's Twig in a movie. I like three, it. Yeah. It could be uh, just a, you know, it doesn't have to be a sequel. It could be a prequel. We meet Andy a little bit before Gary, you know. He was already on the wobble. What's the, what's the title? Go. Twig and Wobbles. <laughs> 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 I'm in. Two <Twitter> and wobbles. <laughs>
So uh, when was the last time you guys were actually in a room together before today? This is it. Today. This is it. This is the first time you've been in a room together. No, we started doing press on Monday. We haven't seen uh-huh. each other for a little while because um, of various, you know, we've been doing other things. and mm. um, But um, we're always kind of on the end of the phone with each other and texting. And, you know, Edgar's been busy in the edit suite for the last six months. And so I hear from him all the time. And Nick and I tend, tend to text rude words to each other daily. <laughs> I think the thing is, is that I'm sure everybody has this. So you have friends, that if you don't see them for a while, there's two types of friends. The people that you can pick up with immediately mm. and the people where like, there's that awkward moment of like, oh, we have nothing in common. And in a way, <laughs> the four actors in the movie, that's how they react to Gary King, like yeah. Simon's character, is he's the person who's been left behind. And we even, me and Simon, like to think of like Gary as almost like a ghost. Yeah. It's like the ghost of Sixth Form past. Mm. And so... You know, even the, the the way that he's introduced into the movie, it's like he's a wraith. And I think sort of like, you know, it was something that once we sort of hit upon this theme and what the story was going to be about, I think we've all been through those experiences of going back to a hometown or, or some reunion or a wedding or something. And it's always bittersweet. As much as there's fun to be had and seeing old friends, there's always sometimes this... um you know, feeling of not belonging in your hometown anymore. And, like, the to me, that's always, like, a really, like, um, interesting theme of, like, feeling completely alienated, pun intended, guys, uh, in your in your hometown. You get it? That's why I yeah, get the big yeah. <laughs> yeah? That's why I am going to get seven figures to write Twickenham Walk. <laughs> Where's the uh, decimal point in those seven figures? <laughs> <laughs> After the first one. <laughs> between one and two, between one and two. Between one and two, that's a lucrative deal, man. Um, but you're talking about uh, you know, the idea of, of, of Gary King and... Uh, do you guys? How do you react to legacy friends? Because that's that's what I kind of call them, uh, legacy friends. Legacy People that, friends, yeah. interesting. Yeah, uh, is that is? Uh, well, I actually am going to invite. Uh, my uh, the people who went on the original pub crawl with me are coming to the premiere next week, which is going to be really funny. Really, and, uh, some of them I uh, uh, some of them I've seen quite recently, and one or two of them I haven't seen for years. But I did email them all the trailer when it came out and said, "Does this seem in any way familiar?" So this would be it'd be really funny to see them at the premiere and see like, oh that one night that we had in 1993 has now somehow inspired this. I find, I, f- I find a huge sense of ennui, if I can use that word in a Ooh. podcast, when I meet a friend and all we have is the past, you know, when all you have is, yeah. and you get, but you can get by on it a little bit, but it's like, all we can do is talk about the past. And it, it sort of, it, it drains me of happiness sometimes because yeah. I realize that they're not going to be my friends anymore. Was that the idea with Gary? Because this is a guy who's consumed by the past. Yeah, it, you know he is the past essentially. So totally. was that the idea behind him? Yeah, he was. You know, th- there's a great tragedy that undermine that underpins Gary and undermines him. That he is someone who, I mean, he says at the beginning of the film about never being happier than that night, like it's a good thing. But it's really the saddest thing that's said in the movie. Yeah, that I knew life would never be that good again, and it never was. It's like <laughs> even that's then, terrible. Even at that point, he knew. Yeah, I know, yeah. Which is even worse. I think you get that there's people like sort of that you meet and like it's sometimes with sportsmen or people that, no, no, people that are like destined to be great players and then have an injury and it's, that's done, like sort of, or happens with bands, you know, people who have some kind of like glimmer of success and Mm. then it's, it's gone. You know, some people deal with that really well and, and move on and other people kind of just, that's, that's their glory days and there's nothing's ever going to get better than that. For me, Gary was the natural child of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, that sort of. Uh... I was stunned then by Edgar referring to a sportsman. Yeah. <laughs> no, Edgar knew sport existed. Wow. Which, which one, Edgar? Haven't you like been watching me on uh, They Think It's All Ever? <laughs> 
Have you not been watching Series 25? I've been ripping it up. Like a footballman who then goes to open a restaurant in Spain. A footballman. A footballman. And then he has all his pictures of his time at Crystal Palace. That... That's what you're thinking about, right? Yeah. No, like a boxing know... legend who then works at Caesar's Palace welcoming people in wearing a, a cape. No, like the guy <laughs> who's attacks. like sort of like <laughs> yeah. great at football, does some tryouts, injures himself and that's it at 20. Mm. That kind of guy. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're kind of the sportsman in this film. Sure, yeah. There's a bit of a change from, you know, the previous two Cornettos. Yeah, I've been a bit slovenly and sloth-filled, yeah. but I think it's the part closest to me. Right. I think people just imagine that I'm just a big lump that smokes a lot of weed, but I don't smoke weed and I'm a natural athlete despite my size. He was a, a rugby player, which is where uh, Andy's rugby playing history kind of comes from. We, we mm. chose that specifically. I even choreographed that move. You did, yeah. The film, you taught really little Zach. Which one? Uh, when he breaks up from the, uh, the base of the mall, mm-hmm. dummies and hands off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's yours. That's Bra- mine. <laughs> Brad, Brad Allen, who's our stunt coordinator, who... Um, you know, trained up with Jackie Chan. He who he is a man who does not offer praise lightly, if at all. And uh, he said that Nick was his favorite action star. He was like sort of like he goes, I, I, Nick is my favorite action actor. He said Simon was good too, but he said that Nick was his favorite. <laughs> I think I think because we started to because we were talking about Nick being the uh, the Western Summer Hulk, Pink Hulk. Uh, <laughs> who coined that phrase by the way the pink hulk, the pink hulk. I think it was me yeah, yeah. it's because he's got the stools we call them the hulk hands like he's <laughs> got those bar stools we call and them he's the wearing hulk a pink hands. also I think yeah. I, had a, I had a point to prove to Brad Allen because he did some stuff on Cuban Fury yeah uh, and he got me doing some wire work and I was never I wasn't keen on doing it it frightened me slightly because I didn't trust the wires uh, and then literally the hour before we went to you know we were rehearsing the wire work and I pulled a muscle on my neck so couldn't do it in the end. Mm. And I always felt sense that Brad looked at me as if to say, you didn't want to do that, so you... You failed, mate. You you <laughs> faked an injury to get out of it. And ah. it wasn't the case, you know. So I felt I really had to prove myself on this to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. show him that I wasn't like yeah. that, you know. I was privileged enough to be on set for one day when, and watched you at your full Pink Hulk peak. Oh, yeah. Smashing people into walls and <laughs> nice. beating them up with umbrellas, which was, yeah. which was fun. While Simon, you were by the bar... Drinking a pint. Yes, <laughs> that's Gar- that's Gary's whole thing. There's a there's one fight in the film when Gary, all he's doing, his most the most important thing to him at that point is protecting his pint, and so he ends up fighting one handed, which is great fun to do again with Brad just choreographing a fight where his main concern is protecting like half a pint of lager which he has left. Um, yeah, that is Gary's. That, that's all Gary is about really is 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 finishing the crawl and doing it correctly and and drinking one pint in every pub and it, it's. No matter how. It, no matter how. It's like his it's it's his primary concern in the face of what they're up against. That's the most important thing to him. And and you realise you find out why later on in the yeah. film, you know. Well we you know, it's interesting designing the fights because we talked a lot about what they should feel like and we want it to be really fast and brutal and, you know, different from like Sean and Hot Fuzz. <laughs> but also we you know, like we did talk about some of the things that we talked about was like, you know, Drunken Master, the Jackie Chan film. There's there's something in that in terms of in Drunken Master, Jackie Chan can't fight until he's had alcohol. But in this movie, it's like alcohol, like empowers them in the sense that they are much more idiotically courageous or they like impervious to pain in that way that, you know, Dutch courage is that you would sort of like do things that you would never dream of doing. You know, in a public uh, information Holland. film on TV, like, you know, somebody climbs up a scaffolding and dies. <laughs> Kids, don't try it at home. Don't do that. But um, in this movie, that that was the idea. And then, you know, so it's, it's trying to sort of, like, 
designed these kind of like brutal but funny brawls that kind of erupt. Right, it's time to blow the news conch. Who better to launch us into Hollywood airspace than the windsock of truth himself? James, what have you got? The only thing I want to talk about is the lunacy that is Sharknado. Now, anyone who's been anywhere near Twitter was probably seeing all of this. When did it When did it air? Somebody tell me when it aired. Oh, God, I just know it was early this week. You can see exactly. I prepared this news story. Yeah, well done. Yeah, so it aired, and everyone on Twitter has been uh, raving about Sci-Fi's original feature, Sharknado, which stars Ian Ziering of Beverly Hills 90210 fame. Ian, not Ian. Um, and Tara Reid of One Boob Showing fame. Yeah. And it involves a tornado full of sharks. <laughs> Hence, a sharknado. And am I right in thinking that some of them land in swimming pools and some of them just land on city streets? On people. Yes. <laughs> yes. This tornado has loaded itself with sharks and deposits them on society where they run amok no, and then presumably die because they're not in water. I haven't seen the, the, the glory of sharknado, which presumably the creators have been waiting for technology to catch up with their Yes. yes. But I, I haven't seen this, but this mystifies me a little bit because this is just the latest in a very long trend of sci-fi literal sci-fi channel films involving sharks Ellie you're more of an expert uh, Sharktopus is one oh god there are oh, <laughs> put me on the spot now I can't remember but there's like Megatuna versus Robo yeah, uh, there's mollusk. a lot of that stuff it's all that kind of thing it's it's. Uh, let's come up with a ridiculous title and work mm. backwards but it's become quite a rich theme for them uh, Sharknado didn't actually do that well no it was below their usual viewing figures I think it was around one and a half million or something it was definitely less than they average certainly but it's it was so talked about on Twitter I think it was the top trending topic yeah. on Twitter uh, and it was so talked about they're already making Sharknado 2 and who wouldn't yeah. and not only that but they've launched a competition on Twitter for people to n- the name of the second film Yeah. so right. people are tweeting in uh, suggestions for the titles I've written a few down that I've seen and one of my own obviously alright go on uh, yes. Two Shark Two Nado no, no. Uh, Army of Sharkness. Oh, no. good, like that. Uh, mine was uh, Sharknado 2 Horror Cane. I like that. Um, <laughs> so any of those could, you know, I might be in Hollywood this time next week uh, in the producer's chair. But it's quite interesting that this thing, you know, when Snakes in a Plane was this very much talked about, that, oh, it's just, it sounds so ridiculous, it's going to be great fun, everyone goes, it. no one went and saw it because mm-hmm. it was rubbish. But um, sci-fi, because it's just in your house, you just have to switch on the channel. This has become what they do, and it's become enormously successful for them, that it is, they know these are stupid. There's no pretense that these are good films, but it's just, who doesn't want to see a tornado full of sharks? Yeah. He's not wrong. But then isn't there a sense that this works on the same level that reality TV works, where a film, in many ways unless you're thinking of cinema, isn't what I would call a communal experience. You know, you absorb what the filmmaker is trying to present to yes. you and you take it on board. When you watch nonsensical reality TV, it's a group thing. You're on Twitter, you're talking to everyone else who's watching it. It's a big, you know, it's a social experience. Mm. I think films like this are exactly that. You're watching it as it unfolds and, and tweeting, OMFG, a shark just fell out of a tornado and landed on a baby or I whatever think, it I does. I think you're exactly right, yeah. That's what they're designed for. These are not films designed to be watched. No. They're designed to be experienced with <laughs> yes. other people and remarking on they're, they're more fun to talk about than to watch even I think well, yeah, yes but while you're watching it I think that's kind exactly of yeah it. I've seen one of them I've seen Frankenfish which I think was about <laughs> 10 years ago but it, I, I find it very curious that they all seem to be aquatic uh, like pick a mix they all seem to be sea based marine based they all seem to be sharks and you don't get sort of a lion that's mutated into a, a I, I think it's the shark isn't it because the shark is, is a cult creature isn't it people love sharks because they're you know 
Cool. Like when I was at university, we rented a movie called Proteus, which has Craig Fairbrass, which is kind of the granddad of this because it has a shark that is uh, genetically spliced with a water buffalo. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the film, I'm not kidding, it's the size of an oil rig. Um, and uh, the, the, you should go online and Google the cover for that. It's astonishing. What does it do? Swim around looking for savannah to graze on? <laughs> I can't remember. It's amazing. Uh, Craig Fairbrass's finest work. Uh, but we should mention before we, we go on to the next thing Ghost Shark which is another shark based movie that's just been greenlit and Ollie have you heard about this? Yes Can you can you give a synopsis? No not really uh, I watched the trailer and didn't really understand it's it It's about uh, I think it's about a shark that can go into any water so it can appear in your glass of water <laughs> or in a bathtub because it's a ghost shark and it will no longer be restrained by the rules of physics But apparently still needs water Yes, it's a shark. Right. Come on. Well, it's, it might be a ghost, yeah, but it's still a shark. I, I'm loving the fact that Ollie's become a sort of mutant shark stroke. I don't know if I want to just restrict you to just the shark genus. It could be no, all it's aquatic, my, it's my thing. mutant movies. You could go a long way with this, Ollie. Nick, what have you got? News-wise, I have... Uh, well, we, we discussed it a, a moment ago. Uh, all You Need Is Kill, the Tom Cruise film, is now called Edge of Tomorrow, which I thought was a tagline for an antiperspirant. But, um, <laughs> that apparently is the new Tom Cruise film. I don't like it. You seem to like it more no, than I, I do. No, I don't, I don't think it's that it's, it's a miraculous title. It's, just, it's less grammatically upsetting than All You Need Is Kill. Well, to be fair, All You Need Is Kill is the name of the book on which it is based. I'm not I'm not disputing that. And in case uh, people don't know what the film is, you could buy the next issue of Empire and you will find out some <laughs> stuff about it. But it's, uh, it's set in the future where man is at war with aliens, as is often the case. But rather than taking place at the time when they attack, this is the war has been going on for a long time. And this is the last... Uh, push all of Earth fighting back against these things. And uh, Tom Cruise plays a soldier who's never really had any experience on the battlefield, who is then sent to the battlefield and dies instantly. That is not a spoiler. But he then starts again at the beginning of that same day, and he keeps repeating that same day, trying to get better as a soldier until he can find a way to beat them. And be not dead. Yes. So All You Need Is Kill never made that much sense as a title. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow, in a way, I don't know how that makes more sense. <laughs> so it's not the sense or not sense. It's so bland. Also, thinking right. about it, like, that doesn't make a lot of semantics. So you can't, what's the Edge of Tomorrow? Well, it's, why, it's like a Pierce Brosnan Bond movie title. Is that Midnight? Is that like the Edge of Tomorrow? So forgettable. Zero Dark Thirty is just over the Edge of Tomorrow. My suspicion, and I absolutely don't know this to be true, so I'm not stating this as fact, is that with films like Pacific Rim... Mm essentially doing quite badly. I think that might have scared studios that having a title... Pacific Rim is a terrible it title for a movie title. and means nothing. I like it. And Sorry. Well, okay, well, you would like her of terrible titles, clearly. <laughs> Half past dead. <laughs> but if people don't understand... They may, might be thinking, people don't understand what this means. We've got this... We had this big Robots versus Sea Monsters movie uh, and we didn't say Robots or Sea Monsters in the title. We just said something that sounds a bit like a, a geographical war. formation exactly it should have been called mega sharks so rimland i think there <laughs> maybe there is some kind of worry that having completely unclear titles is a bad thing edge of tomorrow at least sounds futuristic all you need is kill just sounds like someone threw some words at a page edge of tomorrow sounds like that mel gibson thriller which is almost called the same thing it just sounds like a generic thriller to yeah. me and i really liked all you need to kill is precisely because it doesn't really make any sense grammatically. I'm like, what is that? What does Likewise. that mean? Likewise. Yeah, what does it mean? 
and with a title makes you think that surely is, it's doing its job a little bit but you have you don't have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in how well this movie does okay so oh, right, well, so, so Ollie if you were in charge of the studio and Blade Runner was getting made you would rename that to Robot Detective <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so, I'm, no I'm not it's saying like I, Blade Runner makes no sense I'm not saying I would have but it sounds cool I'm saying that as a thought process in mm. a current time where the movies that are making big money are sequels once you're doing an original original thing it would not surprise me if studios are getting a bit cautious and mm -hmm. thinking we need to be as clear as possible with M this to get people in I get where it's coming from it's the same thought process that has changed the tomb the, the Stallone Schwarzenegger prison movie into yeah. the escape plan but you can see why that happened because the tomb sounds like a horror film no I love the tomb no so do I it's a great title as it's soon like, as you see the trailer you go oh it's not a horror but film but all of this you can just hear marketing people shuffling their papers and just getting upset yeah. and I think that's, that's what this is uh, my uh, new story is about the uh, adaptation of the book Gone Girl, which was the publishing sensation of last year, written by Gillian Flynn. Very, very good book about a man whose wife goes missing, uh, this very happy couple, but then he's accused of killing her. And the way it's told in the book is that you get her diary entries of leading up to this event and also his account, so you don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know how they're going to make it as a, as a film because it's very complicated to adapt because that is a very key thing to it. But uh, David Fincher is directing it and he has started casting and the person who is apparently all but signed is Ben Affleck as the male lead who is the husband who is accused of this murder and is trying to prove that he didn't do it. And also Rosamund Pike is apparently now in talks to play the wife who is this perfect uh, woman and that uh, you've read it as well Phil that, I have that casting to me I can see Rosamund Pike because the character is this uh, very slight almost glacial she's completely perfect and I think Rosamund Pike has that kind of slightly distant quality to her Ben Affleck to me seems possibly a bit old for the character because mm. this is uh, for me the it feels like it should be a guy with his whole life ahead of him and he's got everything to lose by being arrested for murder but Ben Affleck yeah. feels slightly it's old. It's a weird me. one. I, I mean, for me, the, the crux of it is that these this is a couple who are they're a young married couple. They've had they've lost their job in the recession. Mm. She she was a, a a writer for a, you know an Empire Star magazine yeah. in New York, and they've had to move back to his hometown in the Midwest, where she's not really happy. Yeah, ultimately. And so you know, it's about dislocation. It's about dislocation of of their marriage as well a little bit. But it it's kind of rooted in the fact that neither of them have rich you know really really rich life experience at that point they're not yeah. really you know in their late 30s they're yeah. very much in their late 20s and at that point where they're finding things out for the first mm. time and that's kind of why the things that happen sort of are grounded a little bit in that and I worry when you have someone like Ben Affleck I, I can't buy him now as that I mean he's this you know he's got he's a bit lived in he's yeah. been around the blog he's not you know Goodwill Hunting's Ben Affleck mm. anymore and it's kind of almost like someone like that a little maybe a little mm. bit older that, that, that I'd expect but you know, he's very hot right now. So. I mean, it's David Fincher directing, so you, know, you have to put a large amount of trust in him that he absolutely knows what he's doing. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see where it goes. Absolutely. Fin I felt there was, a you know, the game, Finch is one of Fincher's underrated films. There's a little bit of... There's a little bit of that kind of cryptic... It's cloaked in this weird mystery, and yeah. it's quite noirish in a lot of ways. Yeah, the what is what is true, what is not. You're mm. never quite never quite sure it's very much something... I, Finch is a perfect choice for it. Whether the casting, as we see it now, is perfect, but, you know, maybe it'll turn out, they'll alter it slightly and it will make complete sense. He knows even more about casting movies than we do. Even more, yeah. Outstanding work, everyone. Our next guest is a man who's faced more apocalypses than we've had hot dinners, and he keeps coming back for more. 
Nicolas Cage is back in action as an Alaskan detective on the trail of a serial killer in the frozen ground. Nick and James went down to meet him. So we are we are thrilled to welcome to the podcast today the legendary Mr. Nicolas Cage. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me back. How are you guys sure. doing? You are starring in The Frozen Ground, uh, which is obviously a serial killer thriller, which uh, puts you up against John Cusack. Is this a kind of unofficial Con Air reunion? Con Air is a, a popcorn adventure film in, in the best sense of the word, uh, whereas this is a more of a docudrama, more of a cinema verite approach. Uh, again, dealing with real situation, real tragedy. This is quite a dark film. You've made quite a few dark films. Yeah. Do you find that that affects your mood during the production, or do you, can you shake all that stuff off? Because it's based on a true story, and yeah. it's quite disturbing to watch. It, it can. It can uh, affect me while filming. Even almost subconsciously, it can get under my skin, and then I start acting a little bit differently or have difficulty sleeping or my mood maybe gets a bit melancholic but this movie uh really explores some of the horrible things that people people are capable of doing to 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 young ladies you know and uh you know i hate violence i just hate it and i I read the paper every day, I read the New York Times, I read the Guardian, and I, I feel it, you know. I, I, it, gets, it gets inside, and um, it amazes me that people are capable of those kinds of things, children and you know, l- women. There's a quote from uh, Roger Ebert, who once said of you, he's daring and fearless in his choice of roles, unafraid to crawl out on a limb, saw it off, and remain suspended in air. D- does that ring true with you? Rogers, he came from a vanguard of film comment, not unlike Pauline Kael or Paul Schrader, who's even probably arguably the only one that came out of that movement and became a bona fide uh, you know, filmmaker in the best sense of the word. So I, I, I'll listen to people like that, but what I don't listen to are uh, this kind of uh, pop gossip criticism where what difference does it make, you know, uh, how many uh, properties you've bought and lost? What does it have to do with Bad Lieutenant, you know? It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's like, you, you know, these people now are so attracted to the gossip side of it that they don't listen anymore to the, to the, to the movie. It corrupts the, the film comment. That never would have happened with Roger Ebert or with Pauline Kael or with... Schrader when he was a critic. Ethan Hawke has said that what you do with acting is sort of something new. It's and that very few people push boundaries and do. I think he called it more presentation acting. Um, have you called it nouveau shamanic? Was that a phrase? I, I did use those words, and I'll get to that in a minute. But a word about Ethan, I mean... Uh, First of all, he's a novelist. The man is a novelist. That's something I've never been able to do, and I hold him in incredibly high regard. And we did Lord of War together, and I'm very happy with those results. He's also not afraid to take chances. I mean, and it's worked out well for him. I mean, look at uh, The Purge. I mean, because he's, he, he's, a, he's a great actor, and he's not a snob, you know? Explore all the genres, and it served him well, and, that, and it served me well. Uh, but I, I haven't. I have yet to write a novel, so I'm. I know my hats off to Ethan. Nouveau Shamanic was. I think I was trying to say something about the history of acting, but in modern times. I read a book called the uh, The Way of the Actor by Brian, Professor Brian Bates. Yeah. He also wrote a book called The Way of Weird. W Y R D. He's a practicing modern day shaman, and it's his thought that. Uh, 
the shamans in, in pre-Christian times in the villages were actually actors that would go into flights of imagination and get answers to help people sort out whatever their problems were. And Bates puts forth the notion that it's no different today. If you see a movie and you see an anti-hero who is struggling with some sort of inherent flaw but overcomes it and manages to do the right thing, that in some way gives comfort to, to, to internationally the, the world when they see a movie. So the shamans would do things like use power tools to augment their imagination. If you think about it, it's kind of healthier than using chemicals. <laughs> I'm not going to give you any of my tricks to my trade unless you take my master class in Nouveau Shamanic. But, but, uh, but if you give yourself over to the belief that that object will stimulate your mind in such a way where you do not have to act, you are committed and you give yourself over to your dreams, and you, you cultivate, you put yeast on your imagination, that magic works, you know. And that's what this is all about anyway. It's, it's about imagination. That's, that's what acting is. You famously have, have gone to some extreme places uh, with your performances, like obviously eating the cockroach in for Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. Are you the same person that, that did that, or have you grown away from that a little I, bit? I'm, I'm up for anything that will get me to the truth of a performance. Now... I knew, and that was in the 80s, um, Vampire's Kiss, which is a movie I'm very happy with. I knew that, which I didn't want to do, there was no muscle in my body that wanted to eat a, that. <laughs> um, but I knew that the, the, if you could have been there in the theater, the shock, the, the gasps, it was like you spent, you know, $50 million on CGI, you know, tearing apart the White House. But, but no, it, it was just a man eating a bug. You know, and I, that, I, I saw great value in that. Have you seen Old Boy, which has a similar scene with an octopus? Th that, yeah, I did see that. And uh, there was some talk at one point trying to remake that. There's, I, do, I really don't believe there's any way that movie can be remade. I, I, just, don't, I just don't think it's going to cross over with uh, American audiences or even um, uh, European audiences. Talking of uh, 80s uh, films that you made that... that you kind of go for broken. I saw Zanderley oh, not good. too long ago, yeah. and I spoke to Judge Reinhold uh, after good. seeing it, and he, he mentioned uh, that you have a dance scene with him. Yeah. Uh, he mentioned you were a terrible dancer. Yeah, well, that's nice, but, <laughs> but I like Judge in that movie. Boy, he was really good in that movie. Yeah. Um, it was a real fractured, uh, poetic, soulful performance from Judge. Judge and I have history. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I, I auditioned for the part he got, Brad, uh, about 10 times. I went in again and again and again, and finally they found out my age. I think I was like 16 or 17, and they realized that I couldn't work a certain amount of hours because mm. I was underage, and they gave it to Judge, and then I was demoted to Brad's Bud number two. <laughs> and if you look carefully at the movie, I think I flip hamburgers in it. Well, that was the last time I was ever going to be Nicholas Coppola, and then I became Nicholas Cage. But Judge Reinhold is, is superb in Zandley, so. Well, he spoke of you very affectionately. Uh, do you dispute the, his claim that you're a terrible dancer, <laughs> or that you were at that point? I'm sure Judge is a far better dancer than I am. <laughs> I have no doubt about it. I want to see a rematch. Uh, well, yeah, I'd love to make a, another movie with Judge. He's, he's, I, I, again, I, I mean what I said. He was great in that movie. When you mentioned the changing of your name, I mean, Hollywood's gone big guns now for the comic book movies yeah and yet still no power man what's interesting about that is you know people have attached 
words to me like comic book geek or comic book nerd or blah, 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 this, that, the other. But the truth of the matter is I'm loyal to my childhood. I grew up reading comic books. They're how I learned to read, and they stimulated my imagination in a shamanic way even. And I had no doubt that when the time came with the technology that those comic books would translate into some of the greatest entertainment the world has ever seen, and lo and behold, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, so how big of a nerd can I be? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I was aware of it. I'm sure something our readers would love to know, uh, given your love for Superman. Have you had a chance to see Man of Steel? No. I heard it was good, though, and I heard he was good in the, in the part. Well, first of all, look, I mean, Tim is a genius, Tim Burton. He's a great artist, and I'm sure he would have done something really magnificent with the story of Superman. And I knew I was going to go towards something quite unique and different than anything you've seen as Superman. Having said that... Um, in a way, it was a win-win for me that it didn't work out because the, the power of the imagination, again, you get to imagine what that might have been like. That might be even more powerful than the, than the finished product. So I think it worked out. There's an image uh, that leaked online. I'm not sure if it's real or not, but if you were in the costume. There were two images, and there's truth in both. The problem is, the first, first of all, the, the first image looked terrible. The second image looked pretty good. I th- that was a pretty good suit, i got to say. The, the problem is it's unfairly judged, and I don't know who got a hold of it, who in wardrobe or who in the studio or whatever got a hold of it and leaked it. I, I just don't understand that. I thought there were laws against that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not being judged fairly because you, you don't have the lighting that Tim does, and you don't have the, 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 the set and the, the shade and all of that to build it up. You're just seeing just a stark wardrobe shot that's not given any affection so it's it's not a fair assessment of what it would have looked like mm. what, what would have been tim's take on it because obviously Zack snyder's gone the very sort of real very sort of grounded in reality approach whereas tim historically tends to lean far more towards the sort of fantastical which is what i like and and i think that the you know tim can invent worlds you know and with with costume with we're talking about another planet i mean what would that planet have looked like and the, the characters, what, what, what would they have been about? I mean, he's, he's a great artist, and he draws these characters, and he, he, he's going into other dimensions and pulling things back for us to behold, and that movie would have lent itself to that. You mentioned uh, that, you, that you've seen The Purge. I'm guessing, given that you have such a broad variety of films that you make, that you see all kinds of, of films as well. Are you, are you a big movie watcher? Do you keep up with stuff? I try to be when I have time. It's important to me to... Um, to, to stay abreast of what's happening now. And I have different movies for different things. You know, I'll be totally honest. When I want to shut my head off and I don't want to think, like I'm playing Jack Holcomb in a movie as, as grim as The Frozen Ground, I'll go home and I'll put on a Inishiro Honda movie like War of the Gargantuas or Godzilla you know, versus Ghidra. And, and just, because he was a great artist too, but it was like puppetry. You know, but I love that charm, that childlike charm of those men in suits playing those characters. I mean, it's a great way not to have to think, you know. A Spielberg uh, famously would watch Seinfeld box sets while he was making Schindler's List just because the subject matter was so bleak during the day. What would you watch? Uh, Seinfeld, box sets of Seinfeld. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah are they com- the same thing. Yeah, are there comedies that, that are kind yeah. of escapism for you as well? No. No, comedy never really lent itself. There's very few things that make me laugh. Uh, 
Mike Myers as Austin Powers makes me laugh. That one really just, uh, that, that was genius. Uh, Daffy Duck makes me laugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I, I, like, I like odd behavior. I don't like hip dialogue and one-liners and all that sort of cool sophomoric comedy. It's just not for me. Hmm. Raising Arizona was kind of your performance was inspired a little bit by Daffy Duck. I yeah, well, uh, Woody Woodpecker. Oh, Woody Woodpecker. Yeah, right, different, yeah, different bird. Yeah, the hair and all that. I would rub my hand on my head to get static electricity into the hair so it would stand up, and I could <laughs> look like the tattoo I have in the movie, which is like a hard-edged Woody Woodpecker, the thrush muffler of a woodpecker with the wind in its feathers and its hair and a cigar. Wanted to look like that. I want to ask about Expendables 3. We asked you about it last year when you came in for a web chat yeah. and you didn't know anything about it. I it's, still don't. You still don't know anything about <laughs> yeah, it? I'm not, I'm not in that movie. <laughs> I'm not in Kick-Ass 2. I'm not in Expendables 3. It's bizarre. I don't know. Well, Somebody just, out there really wants you to be in it. I, I guess, yeah. But that's okay. I mean, I like all those guys and I know the producer very well and he's a great guy and I've made good movies with him, but I haven't read a script and I haven't had any formal offers and so I don't know. It's a little bit premature. Well, it's a celebration of kind of the action genre. I mean, you've been two in, in two of my favourite action films, Face Off and The Rock. I read that The Rock was written initially in a more sort of serious bent, and a lot of the comedy came out of ad-libbing. I mean, Zeus's butthole, lines like that. Was that essentially your input on set? Yeah, I mean, I always liked to... The thing that I enjoyed about working with Bruckheimer was I always was given some reign to improvise. And, you know, all the stuff like, oh, this is, I'm 16 and I'm angry at my father, kind of pubescent energy, all that stuff. Or, you know, that's great and I like history too and next time we can find some postcards. But right now I just want to find some rockets or, you know, I am, I, she was the prom queen. All that stuff was just improv. And uh, even the Beatlemaniac aspect of the character, that wasn't in the script. The thing about working with juries, you have just, you, you have to serve the formula get the scene out quickly so you have a very finite amount of time to build a character. So the idea that that, that character listened to vinyl and not CDs and was get, paying $600 for a Beatles album, Meet the Beatles, to me made him interesting. Yeah. But that wasn't in the script. Well, it's, it's interesting. I spoke to Arnold Schwarzenegger last year and he was saying that Don Simpson and him had very early conversations about that character. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Stanley Goodspeed. Do you know what I mean? That's a different movie entirely. I'm sure there were those conversations. I wasn't a part of them, obviously, <laughs> but, but I'm sure there were. Uh, you know, Goodspeed was a great chance for me to explore the... It was my first real, shall I say, A-plus action invitation, action inve- adventure invitation. I had just done Leaving Las Vegas and then The Rock, and they were both in the can, They hadn't been released yet, but it was something that I was, there were two forms of expression that I wanted to experience, popcorn adventure and thought-provoking drama. And I thought, why not do both? And that wasn't popular, I think, in those days. Because tonally could not be more different. Which is what made it interesting to me. And then then after Leaving Las Vegas came out and and the good stuff that happened from that, I wanted to keep doing what was thought would be the wrong thing for me to do, to go against the grain, to zig instead of zag, and don't put me in a box. Now I'm going to do this, you know. And I know it pissed a lot of people off, but, but for me it was the right move, and I still stand by it. As you mentioned earlier, and as proven with the Expendables 3 thing, the press does tend to come up with some quite weird sort of rumors about you. Yeah. So I wanted to run a couple past you. Yeah, okay. Is it true you're fascinated by hang gliding? Yes, okay. but I'm, I'm not allowed to do it. Just as soon as I declared it on David Letterman, 
<laughs> I'm not allowed to do it. There's, 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 I have a, there's a people in my mm. life that legally have barred me from any dangerous activity unless I'm working. That said, when I last spoke to you, which was on the set of Lord of War, you'd just been in a cage with a shark. Yes. Yeah, and that was something. That was amazing. And my shark was nice. <laughs> but, but some of my colleagues got in the cage next, and boy, it was, they said they felt like they came back from Nam. I mean, the shark was ramming the cage. It had, like, tuna meat in its teeth, and they got pictures. And then the, these right whales were swimming by, and then the, the white sharks were just tearing up the cage. It was very terrifying. But Did my shark was nice. You had a kind of a, an affinity with yours. Yeah, my shark, I, it must have been a female. I don't know what, but there was a connection. <laughs> there was, like, love there. <laughs> I felt romantic. You know, we were, like, looking at each other. And I'm like, well, you're, you are it. You're the white shark. Baddest of the bad. I want to adapt this into a movie now. I'd love to see that. You're a fan of sharks then, generally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love them. And you'd have dinosaurs, too. I mean, you used to have a, was it a Tarbosaurus? Uh, yeah. But zoology has always been interesting to me. You know, it's, you know, nature is fascinating. I want to segue neatly into another rumor, which is that as a child, you once uh, cooked and ate a rattlesnake. Well, the, 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 the sad truth is I didn't have any choice. I was, found my, myself in a rattlesnake patch, and there I was, surrounded by very large rattlesnakes. And I didn't know how I was going to get out and get back. I'd been fishing with my cousin, and I didn't know how I was going to get back to the house. Uh, and lo and behold, there was a stick there and with a nail through it. And um, I knew that it was there for a reason, so I took it. And all these animal rights people, please don't be mad at me, but I, my safety and my cousin's safety was at stake. So I, I, I did beat it, and then it came up and started hissing at me and was about to strike, and I managed to get control of it. I immediately felt bad about it, and so I, I put it in the, the bucket of water that I had for the fish, and I got it home. And I, I knew that anything you kill, you got to eat. So it's a cycle of life, do the right thing. So I, I got the head off so that the poison didn't go into the meat. And then I cooked it, and it was actually very, very good. Mm -hmm. And um, interesting, I have another uh, snake story. A every great story seems to begin with a snake. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I was doing a movie called Joe. And in the movie, my character it hasn't come out yet. There's a copper mouth snake in the movie. There were two. One had venom, one didn't. And in the scene, it's in the grass. But I said, let's use the one with venom. And, and David Gordon Green immediately said, you know, Nick, if, if, any, if you get bit, you're going to die. And I'm going to look like the biggest idiot in Hollywood that I let you do this. <laughs> and I said, well, he goes, well, why do you want to do it? And I said, because I think it will relax me. I'm one of those guys that the more coffee I drink, the more stunts that I do, the more relaxed I get. And I had a four-page scene of dialogue with Ty Sheridan. I picked the snake up. And, he, and David loved it because the fangs on that animal are, are enormous. And, uh, and I'm playing with the snake in the scene. And, and then I, I, I get it gently into the grass and I say, um, y'all don't kill it. That snake's a friend of mine. And I'm very proud of that scene. <laughs> now, another thing which sounds even more terrifying than an encounter with a snake was that apparently you were stalked by a mime while you were making Bringing Out the Dead. Is that true? It, yeah, yeah. I had for a while, I had the, there was a mime stalking me. Not only there, I had that guy in my house. Remember that story? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, that was horrible. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. Two in the morning, you got a naked man standing in front of your bed watching you sleep. Mm. It's not funny, mm. you know, but somehow people find it amusing. If he'd been pretending to try and get around an invisible wall, though, that might have been a little bit funny. Well, that could have been funny, but, but this was, you know, this was out of bounds. Given your love of zoology, do you have a lot of pets? Yeah, well, I, I have dogs, you know, I love dogs, and um, 
Yeah, I, it's no secret that I, I find reptiles interesting. But the thing about reptiles, and I understand them, is that they really just want to be left alone. Mm. It's like, you know, don't pick me up. Stop holding me. Don't look at me. Just leave me alone. And some, I have to admit, sometimes I do feel like that. Do you relate to that? I can. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I meet people well, and, I, and I, I think it's important to meet people well. I know what it means to meet someone that you, you, you like or you've seen, and you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, you know? If a girl wants to take my picture and she's eight years old, absolutely I'm going to take her picture. I'm not going to put her down or ruin her day. But if, it's just that if I'm feeling more reptile, then I just stay home. You know, <laughs> I don't go out. Yeah. It's time for reviews, and where else to start than with The World's End? It's cinema's first ever sci-fi action midlife crisis comedy set almost entirely in a pub. But is it a slice of fried gold or a pint of bovril? So... To sum up the plot, first of all, Simon Pegg plays a guy who was the essentially the coolest kid in his gang at school, and things have gone somewhat wrong for him. And he decides that he's going to reassemble this crew of uh, five friends and complete what he considered the greatest incomplete night of his life, which was when they tried to do a pub crawl of their local village, and they all bowed out halfway through because they were so drunk. So he wants to finish that. So it's the difference between what your life is like when you're 16 and what your life is like when you're on the edge of 40. So while they're on the pub crawl, uh, they encounter alien beings, and part of it is working out what their intention is, and part of it is uh, stopping them doing whatever it is they're trying to do. As a closer to the trilogy, for me, it wasn't as much fun as Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. Uh, I think Nick liked it more than I did, Um, certainly marked it who reviewed it gave it four stars um, and it was very very funny the, the central idea of uh, the world ending just while you're with your pals and the fact that your all your normal everyday concerns still come into play even when the world is ending you don't you don't chuck aside your, <laughs> your slight resentments of your best friends uh, is brilliantly done and there are great characters in it Nick Frost's character I thought was superb I think he's really the heart of it He's the one you root for. If I had a problem with it, it was that I couldn't root for Simon Pegg's character, who I found relentlessly selfish and self-absorbed. And I, and I felt uh, that kind of character's fine, but when he's the hero, that's something I found hard to invest in, which kind of pushed me out of the film a bit. Mm. I think I'm the rare exception. A lot of people seem to absolutely love it. Yeah, I think they were going for a kind of with now and I type thing with Gary, um, where he's the kind of the louche but very witty. You know, most of the jokes in the first hour, especially, come from him mm. because the other guys on the crawl don't really want to be there. And so I I missed a little bit the sense of camaraderie and the the, the friendship that you get in Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead between Peg and Frost characters. Mm. That they kind of there's a lot of fun that comes out of the interplay between those two. And this is a little bit darker and gloomier possibly I know Shaun of the Dead does go to some pretty dark places but this this definitely goes into some pretty sort of dark areas and they they don't get on for most of the film those two guys in defence of Gary um, I will say I think a lot of people did say that that he is a little unsympathetic I think towards the end of the film as his backstory becomes more apparent uh, not that it's a spoiler or anything I think that Evaporates and on second viewing, I would have thought that's not so much of a problem. The thing mm. is, he's one of those really, you know, almost tragic characters, a lot of pathos there. That he, someone who was really popular, whose life essentially peaked mm. while he was at school, and it was all downhill from there. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of films, and indeed, I mean, the whole of Friday Night Lights is based on that whole 
idea that for certain people sports stars the cool kids school is as good as their life will ever get mm. and after that nothing ever really lives up to it and mm. that's really tragic and i think seeing gary through that light you do feel more sympathy for him uh, and all of his other friends who weren't as cool as him but have made you know great success of themselves outside of school you know they've, they've got it but they don't really mm. see it the same way yeah and uh, to be fair to it yeah it's it's not going for laughs quite as much as hot fuzz which throws everything at the wall mm. and just yeah. has silly yeah. visual gags this is much more comes from a more mature place and i think it's a fantastic idea for a film the idea of these are uh, you know it's surprising we don't see more like that if you're these old yeah. school friends meeting up and reliving their past and stuff ollie's absolutely right though and that's the that's the, the the really interesting part of this is that even in the midst of the end of the world he's right your personal petty things are as pressing and in your mind uh, as they would be you know you don't put that all aside because you're about to die yeah uh, and that's where a lot of the comedy mm, comes from and yeah. it, it is it is very funny and it, uh, I've seen this now uh, two and a half times because <laughs> we, we had the first uh, 50 minutes screen to us uh, in advance of the whole yeah. film and the more times you see it definitely you pick up on more stuff this is an extremely clever script almost every line there are things you pick up in the first half hour that re reflect back on things that happen at the end of the film and right down to the design of the sets and stuff it's really really been well thought out and well planned out so I think it's definitely a film that you know um, will grow on you and you'll go back to it and keep seeing new things um, and there's some really really funny stuff in there mm. I love there's a reference to the knife game from Aliens that yes. does that. I thought <laughs> of you James when I saw that thank you also Eddie Marsan comedy genius yes. he's absolutely yeah, he's legendary in this just hysterical but everyone gets their moment yeah, they uh, do. Martin Freeman has some absolutely genius moments as we said before Nick Frost probably gets the funniest bit of the film with one of his uh, shots where he walks through a door mm. yeah. the interplay between all the friends I think is superb I think that's really well balanced as you, and as as you say they don't marginalise any of the friends they all you get a full sense of who they all are mm. it's a film I'd quite like to see again because as I said I didn't uh, Simon Pegg's character grated on me I just couldn't mm. buy into them because I didn't like him but now I know exactly what to expect I mean it's an actu actually a film where when I came out of it I thought oh, God, I didn't like that much because I remembered all the bits of Simon you know Gary that yeah, that annoyed me even right up to the end um, but as I thought about it more the next day I liked it more so it is the kind of film that I'd like to see again see if it grows me the way, same way Shaun of the Dead did so, first time I saw Shaun of the Dead I was like oh, that was that was good and it was a film that Ooh. the more I thought about it yeah and the more I saw it and I've seen it about four or five times now I think yeah I liked it more I think what it is is that uh, they were doing something different with this and mm. I was expecting you know for example they've got some pretty elaborate fight scenes in this and having just done Scott Pilgrim vs. the World I thought Edgar might you know be do it throwing some of that kind of stuff it's done completely different it couldn't be more different mm. to the fight scenes in that so mm. I admired the fact that they've gone for something they do well in this what they do very well in Sean the, the tonal gear shifts come very frequently in this in, in Sean I think there's that one isn't there it, it shifts about two thirds of the way in they, they come down several gears and it becomes very dark and quite sinister mm. uh, and this there's a couple of shifts where the tone at the beginning is very very different to the tone in the middle of the film and then it shifts again towards the end mm. uh, he's quite deaf that way I feel like <clears throat> it's almost it's almost um, not doing itself any favours being part of the trilogy in a weird way it's almost like you kind of bring a lot of expectation having seen Hot Fires I mean Shaun of the Dead is one of my favourite films mm. I literally cannot watch it enough times and it does have those moments of pathos in it obviously but but really, it's kind of like a comedy throughout. This is kind of isn't a comedy in the it, same way. It mm -hmm. is. It's a comedy in the same way that With Null and I is a comedy. But it's also, you know, it's a coming of age or a come of age kind of elements to it as well that kind of stand apart, I think. Or a regressing of age. Yeah. Kind of. But I mean, what I'm saying is don't bring too much of that kind of expectation. It, it does kind of round off the trilogy in a nice way, but it's a very different thing. I think you're right. I mean, I think the, the trilogy thing is... 
is only obviously very loose. I mean, it's just it's the team that who are the trilogy. There's not actually any through line. I think you're right in the sense that it, yeah, it is. It's uh, in a way, it's a. I think it's a braver film than either of the other two. It's trying to do an awful lot more, and it's trying to say an awful lot more within the mm. story it's telling. It's it, it could have so easily just done. You put Nick Frost and Simon Pegg together, and you could make a very efficient comedy. It didn't really need to try, which it has, um, and it's. I think I think that's to be to be applauded that it has tried to do something different, um, but yeah, I would I think you're right saying don't go in expecting it to be Shaun of the Dead because they're not really the same kind of comedy. They're not great soundtrack too. Great soundtrack. We should also mention there's some terrific action in it. There's some very very good special effects. So we gave The World's End four stars, and that's in cinemas today. And next we're tackling The Frozen Ground, the true life thriller that we mentioned earlier that pitches Nick Cage's detective on the trail of John Cusack's seriously nasty serial killer across the Alaskan snowfields. But is it any good, James? Uh, it, it's not bad. It's um, it's quite dark and it's pretty depressing. Uh, it, it's it's a true story, obviously. Um, it was uh, from the 1980s, based in Alaska, where um, uh, a, a very unpleasant gentleman, here played by uh, John Cusack, had a habit of um, abducting, raping, hunting and shooting prostitutes uh, in the Alaskan wilderness. Lovely chap. Um, he's currently doing, I think, something like 470 years in prison for it. Is that a spoiler? <laughs> um, anyway, it's a true story, so probably not. So Nick Cage, yes, plays the sort of Alaskan state trooper who has been tracking this... Uh, this, this I, I, I hesitate at this point, they didn't even know it was a serial killer. He's been tracking a series of bodies who've been turning up around Alaska of mutilated young women. Um, this coincides with Vanessa Hudgens, who plays a prostitute who manages to get away from the killer. Uh, she's discovered hysterical in a hotel room, and he puts two and two together, with a little bit of help. Um, and using her, he manages to sort of track down uh, John Cusack's killer and try and, and, and essentially try and get him to ensnare himself. Um, the problem with this is the problem with all um, true life stories that they're not shall we say, necessarily cinematic in structure. Mm. Um, and I think you can tell quite clearly from watching this film the tonal beats where they've had to introduce cinematic devices to make it feel like a film. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, you need a three-act structure, and, and, and the actual story of how they caught this, uh, this serial killer is perhaps not all that thrilling. That said, I mean, the film is decent. It's directed by Scott Walker, who's famous for... Well, this now. Um, <laughs> it's his first film. It is. Well, he's done one other film, but I can't remember he's what it's He's done a called. short. I think a this short, is his first yes. feature. His he's first from feature. New Zealand. He is from New Zealand. And he's very, very good. I, I've seen this as well. And he's very good at uh, getting a sense of place. It's Alaska in the 70s? No, 80s. 82 Sorry, to 83. Alaska in, in the 80s. But it, he captures the kind of grimy. It's, it's, I've crossed Alaska off my uh, to visit list after this. Yeah. It seems like a horrible place. Yeah. And all the cops are corrupt. They don't want this case to be delved into and it seems that everyone is either a pimp or a prostitute. On it the does. I, as I think Kim pointed out in this review, the casting is a little uninspired. You know, love Nick Cage to bits, but Nick Cage is the slightly sort of world-weary, about-to-retire detective. Uh, 50, 50 cent. cent as a pimp, really, really. That's the best you could do. Breaking Bad, um, Hank from Breaking Bad. Hank from Breaking Bad. As a, as a, <laughs> yeah, it's another cop. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the casting. But Vanessa Hudgens, to be fair to her, I think is a standout in this film. She's, she's absolutely, I don't know if you can say radiant, since she looks like, you know, she's been... No, radiant not the word no but she's, she looks she's dreadful in this but intentionally so she's uh she plays the call, call girl cindy paulson who escapes and she's uh obviously an emotional wreck traumatic childhood been abducted and molested by a serial killer you know enough to really put a put a put a dent in your day um plus cage cage is very good he's very good in a in a nick cagey way he doesn't get a lot to do <clears throat> no he doesn't he's not get a lot, lot to, to work do. with 
Because this is obviously reuniting the Conair team. It is. Like Kuzak The last Cage. time we saw them, they were beating the crap out of John Malkovich. Um, you know, uh, having put bunnies back in boxes. Um, I'd, I'd, I'll be honest, I'd rather watch Conair if you gave me the option between the two things, because it's a lot more fun. This is a very, very bleak and very, very depressing film. It is it's especially bleak, because it's true. I'm sad to hear you say that, because I really want to go to Alaska. And you're saying not to, because it's rubs. Well, don't go to it in the 80s. <laughs> We're saying, don't go to 80s serial killer Alaska, go to Northern Exposure Alaska, and you'll have fun. Well, Trail Finders had a special on, on that, so that's disappointing. Yeah. We gave The Frozen Ground three stars. Also out this week, last but not least, Drake Dreamus' follow-up to the much-praised Like Crazy. Breathe In, it's another off-kilter romance, this time starring Felicity Jones as a foreign exchange student who comes into Guy Pearce's life, family life and turns it upside down. We gave that three stars. Also, Haifa Al-Masur's Wajada, which is notable not only for being the first Saudi Arabian film to be directed by a woman, but also for being four stars great. That's a lovely film. Have you seen it? Mm. Yeah, well, it's definitely worth tracking down because mm. it's a massively groundbreaking Yeah, It was a film it? that I expected to be kind of obligated to like because, as you say, it's the first Saudi Arabian film directed by a woman. I thought, I should respect this and this, you know, it, and feel like this should be important. But it's actually a really lovely little story just about a girl who wants to get a bike, but it, which sounds like nothing, but in the society that she lives in, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's lo- it's really, really lovely. I think if you can find it on somewhere, I definitely recommend going to see that. That's so nice. I'm glad you've seen it, Ollie. It reminds me a little bit of The Bicycle Thieves and The Kid with the Bike, is it? So, great films with bikes. Yes. There you go. Sex Trafficking Drama Eden is also out. That got three stars, as did Daniel Safehouse Espinosa's Swedish thriller Easy Money. And if you're looking for the ultimate date movie this weekend... Roman Holiday is freshly restored and back in cinemas with Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck and a scooter. (laughs) But not a bike. But not a bike. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined in a specially reinforced pod booth by Wolvie himself, Hugh Jackman, and serving up a slice of James Mangold, unfried. He was very insistent about that. That's not to mention Francis Harderator and Madagascar 3 writer Noah Baumbach talking about his new comedy drama and explaining the origins of the polka dot afro. Don't miss it. I like that Noah Baumbach is now Madagascar free writer. <laughs> <laughs> That's his thing. That's all he's calling card. Like I'm that. sure of it. Until then, it's goodbye from James. Goodbye from James. Or Ollie. Who can <laughs> say? Well, hang on. Goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye. There you go. And goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me too. I'm off to stare moodily at a camera on a French beach. Au revoir, les enfants.